You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cassio. In this episode, I'm joined by Monsignor John DeLendick, an FDNY chaplain who has exhibited remarkable empathy, compassion, and bravery throughout his life. An FDNY chaplain since 1996, his duties include ministering to the needs of department members and victims during an emergency, making hospital visits, visiting families of victims, conducting memorial services, and being a spiritual presence in the fire department. On September 11, 2001, he responded to the horrific terrorist attacks where he had little time to contemplate his own safety or mourn his friends and colleagues. Despite the chaos, he served as a pathfinder to safety, first aid, and ambulances while providing counsel to the desperate who were losing hope. After the attacks, he continued to show his support during the recovery efforts, becoming a fixture at the pile and attending funeral after funeral. Eventually, Monsignor Delendic received the same news that many of us have since that fateful day, that he too had developed World Trade Center-related illness. Monsignor Delendic has led an exemplary life, one which we are grateful for and are proud to feature in this episode. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to have you here today. Before we go into the 9-11 details of your response and what happens that day for you, tell us, how do you join the priesthood and then what leads you to the FDMY to become a chaplain here? Well, I really wanted to be priest from early in life. The priests in my parish were always very good. And I wanted to be like them. So I kind of became close to them, and we became friends. And that was really my first call to priesthood. There's a lot of others that took place along the way which superseded that. The more I learned, the more I realized I was being called by God, and uh, eventually I was ordained a priest. I went to Cathedral College and the Immaculate Conception Seminary out in Huntington, and I was ordained for the Diocese of Brooklyn. So here I am. Now, to get into the fire department, I always say that's harder than figuring out how to become a bishop, you see. Back then, I was close friends. I was a classmate of mine, actually. His father was a deputy chief in the 6th Division in the Bronx. And, well, when we were in college, I would visit him there. In fact, I spent a couple of nights there with them, got to know the guys in that house. and, And I got to realize they were more like a religious community than most religious communities I knew. Mm-hmm. You know, the way they took care of each other and the way they cared for each other. And, and, and I decided somehow I wanted to become one of them. But I had to get ordained first. So that took place. And it was in 1982. Chief Byrne was now working at headquarters. He was the exec for the first deputy commissioner. And I was called in and asked if I'd like to be chaplain to the fire department anchor club. That's not a marine unit. That's not a yacht club. That's not anything to do with boats. The anchor is the symbol of the Knights of Columbus, and we're an offshoot of the Knights of Columbus. Eventually, we became a charitable group, and we always got a lot of volunteers who came and, and worked firefighters who came to help us. And uh, that was my first really dabbling with the department. I eventually became an honorary battalion chief, and right after that, I became an honorary member of the Honor Legion. Everything was honorary, okay? 
And then in 96, I got word that, that Monsignor Brady was going to retire. You had to wait for someone to retire. They either had to die or retire. They're the only way. On. So I pulled out all plugs. I, I spoke to Tom Van Essen, who was actually just coming in and becoming part of the department as commissioner. So I wrote a letter to my bishop, and I went to see him. It was Bishop Daly. And I was told what to say and what not to say, you know. Don't go because you like to be a buff. You'll never get it. So I told him I, I did a lot of work with, with the widows, with the Honor Legion. Ultimately, in, in, in May of 96, I was appointed to the fire department. The next day, I got a phone call from downtown here. And uh, it wasn't here. It was Lafayette Street at the time. That they wanted me to go the next day and be the uh, chaplain. There was their anniversary at Engine 240. So I didn't have a uniform yet, but I was, I was there. In fact, they took out this video and they showed it to me recently. I said, son of a gun, you know. So it was the first event that you officiated? Yeah, yeah. So that's really how I got into it, you know. Back in those days, there was no such thing as schedules as we know of it now. So I was on call seven days a week, 24 hours a day. In those days, you got called always at night. You got something always at night either a firefighter in the hospital or a third alarm. So I got used to uh, getting up, you know. It was after 9-11 that we finally organized, and we got more chaplains, and we organized a schedule that everyone had to be involved and everyone had to respond. So speaking of 9-11, the call comes in, right? The call comes in for a plane into a building. How did you discover this, and, and what prompts you to respond to the site? Well, in those days, we had a pager and it'd give you a message. And all it said was a small plane crashed into one of the trade centers. And I had just finished saying mass, and I turned on the TV. And I'm looking, I said, that wasn't a little plane. That was quite a big plane. You know? So I called FDOC and said I was responding. Back then, I was in St. Michael's on 4th Avenue. So it was actually pretty fast. It took a while to get through the tunnel. But I actually saw on the Brooklyn side, I saw the second plane and it was very low, and it was moving very fast, and I lost sight of it, and then I heard on the radio that the uh, second plane had, had gone into uh, the North Tower. So I finally got through the tunnel. I parked as close to the tunnel as I could, and I walked down to the Trade Center. I didn't want to get near it because I didn't want to get trapped in by other apparatus. Mm -hmm. Little did I know it was more than that I had to worry about. You know? mm, right. I arrived, the first person I saw was Jerry Barber. He was standing on a sidewalk by himself, looking up at the South Tower. And I greeted him and he looked at me. I said, how you doing? And he says, I don't have enough people for this. You know, he says, I don't think they have enough people for this. The command post was down further on a block on West Street. It was right in front of the atrium. That was a whole glass, I guess it was a restaurant up there, you know. We were there in front of that, and underneath it were these uh, bays for trucks to make deliveries. So I, I stood there for a while at the command post as different people come in. I stood next to Timmy Stackpole for a while, and the people started jumping off the building. And that was horrendous. It took a while. You're looking, and, and you thought it was debris coming off, and then realized it was people. 
So I said to Timmy, I think, I said, we should go back and talk to the officers and to tell them to watch out for their members that um, they may not be able to, to take this. Then we turned around and we looked at the officers. They had trouble handling it too. Mm -hmm. I had trouble handling it. It was just, it was unbelievable. Sounds horrifying. Yeah, yeah. I can't tell you exactly when. I was terrible with time. Yeah. I had no idea what time any of this stuff was, but we heard this explosion. I thought it was an explosion. The top of the South Tower, and when you looked at it, it looked, looked like the four sides had, had just come out. Little did we know it was actually coming down. Mm. So we ran underneath the financial center, you know, underneath the atrium, down those, that ramp, and all this smoke and stuff followed us right down. It was unbelievable. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. But we turned around. At this point, I was just with Chief Fian, and Chief Gancy went out a different way. We turned around and walked back up the ramp, and again, we couldn't see anything. We didn't know the building collapsed. I didn't know the building collapsed. I said to Bill, I don't remember walking that far. And we were out actually halfway across the street already. You know, that's how far we had, we had gone. Chief Gancy came out. He started yelling for everyone to go north, to go to Chambers Street to reform the, uh, the command post there. I had said to him, I think I should stay down here because I might be needed. I don't know who's hurt or not hurt, you know. He said, no, go up to Chambers Street. If we need you, we'll call you. And he said, if you find any stragglers, take them with you. So I always actually credited him with saving my life, you know. So I started going north. I went north. When I got to that corner, I heard the same noise with the North Tower. And instead of heading to Chambers Street, I turned and ran towards the river, the uh, Hudson River. And as I was running, this police officer ran up next to me. <laughs> and he said, Father, can I go to confession? <laughs> I look at him and says, I said, this is an act of war, right? And he said, yes. He said, right, I'm giving everyone general absolution. <laughs> and I was reminded later, this was the second time that day I gave it. I gave general absolution when the people were jumping off the building. For our listeners who aren't Catholic, what is that? We have a sacrament. We have seven sacraments. One of them is the Sacrament of Reconciliation, or Confession, as people call it. Absolution is the prayer for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so at the end of when a person confesses their sins, we uh, pray the absolution to forgive their sins. Mm -hmm. General absolution is usually done like in wartime when, when a, a chaplain is on a battlefield and there's a whole field full of, you know, and there's no way under God's earth are you going to hear confessions of all these people, and that's how I felt that day. So I used that rule, and I gave everyone forgiveness of, of their sins. And I'll tell you, that, that helped later on when we started the support groups with the families, you know, especially the parents and stuff. And some of them, especially the mothers, would say, you know, my, my son hasn't been to church in years. Says he hasn't been to confession. Uh, can he be saved? And all this, I said, I gave them all general absolution, <laughs> don't worry. And plus the fact that he ran up those stairs for good, the Lord's never gonna condemn her for that, you know. So we made it up finally to, to Chambers Street. Mm -hmm. 
It was at that point, someone handed me Michael Judge's helmet and told me that, that he was killed. Had you seen him before the collapses? No, he was in the, uh, the lobby of the North Tower, so I did not see him that morning alive. I saw him later on when he was lying in St. Peter's. Then when the smoke started clearing and realized there was no buildings there, they were gone. How could that be, you know? And I was still holding that helmet, and Rescue 2 was now kind of running down the block. And I stopped him a second. I said I wanted him to know that Michael Judge was, was killed. I believe at that point they also heard that both Chief Gancy and Commissioner Feehan were dead as well. So I walked down to the Trade Center site once that smoke went down. I found one of the guys from the UFOA, and their office is only like two blocks away from there. And I handed the helmet to, to him. I said, I want you to take it to your offices, put it in a closet somewhere, lock that closet. Don't give it to anyone. We just don't want it to disappear. UFOA is the Uniform Fire Officers Association, right. which is the union for the fire officers, lieutenants, and higher ranks. Right. So during that day, I did a lot of walking around, did a lot of talking to people, firefighters, a lot of fathers who showed up on the scene, you know, notably like Jimmy Boyle came. You mean after the collapses? Yeah. And later that day, the Ginley brothers and the father showed up. I know them very well. Three of them came and the father, one of them was missing, John Ginley. I had married him as I married all the brothers and baptized all their kids. And he was missing and he was, he was killed. So much of the day was spent doing that. You know, they'd ask me, do you know where my son was working? I said, I, I can't tell you. The board got destroyed. The board that so, showed the yeah. tracking. I went into St. Peter's Church and I saw uh, Father Judge. They actually had kind of laid him out in front of the altar, put a stole on him, and, uh, and there was a lot of people coming in and, and, and praying. And he had a gash behind his head because when he was running up the elevator when they were leaving the North Tower, he fell and hit his head, back of the head on one of the steps of the elevator. That's why he was bleeding. So that was uh, poor Michael Judge, you know. I hate the picture of his, you know, where they have him being carried out on a chair. Yeah. I've had so many people giving me that picture and I'd hand it back. I says, I don't want it. That's not the Michael Judge I remember. The Michael Judge I remember was the picture of him standing on the seashore, you know, in Flight 800, standing there, looking out in the water, and he was praying. That's the Michael Judge I want to know and remember. So that's the picture I have up in my room. But I, I ran into a lot of people I knew from Brooklyn that were standing there waiting to be, be, be sent in. And in fact, a lot of them were very happy to see me. There was a lot of discussions going on. Who was missing? Yeah. Who's unaccounted for? Yeah. yeah. Later on in the evening, the command post moved into the financial building up on, a, I believe it was the third floor. The third floor was the cafeteria. And I went up there, sat for a couple of minutes. I said, wait a minute, the cafeteria's out there. All the tables have all the breakfast stuff on it. You know, they hadn't had time to clear anything. I grabbed a couple of firefighters, and I said, you got flashlights? Yeah, he says, 
come with me. So we found the kitchen. I opened up all the refrigerators, of course, weren't working. And all the sandwiches that were made for lunch, and all wrapped up, all ready, I pulled them all out, and I told these two guys, bring them downstairs, just give them out, because they're not gonna be any good tomorrow anyway. So if anyone wants to know what happened to them, tell them I took them. I'll be glad to send them a check, but don't wait too long, you know. I went back downstairs, and I finally went home about four o'clock in the morning, and that was kind of strange. First of all, when I found my car, it was covered. It looked like it had been through a blizzard, of course, which was better than the others in front of me that were destroyed. Mm. So I brushed off as much as I could, went through the, the tunnel, and went home. When I got home, there was nobody up. Everyone's in bed. I don't know what I thought, so I went to my rooms. I called my sisters, and I told them I was still alive because you couldn't call them anywhere, you know. I actually made a drink, not unusual. I sat down, and I thought about it. In the seminary, they used to talk about the loneliness of celibacy, that it's a lonely life at times. And this is a time I really felt it. Like I said, there was no one there to greet me. Firefighters going home. Their wives were going to greet them. Their kids, hopefully, would be greeting them. The guys who work for me, the priests who work for me, were all sound asleep upstairs. <laughs> So I sat there, and, and I actually, I cried. It was the first time I cried that day. And it just came down, you know. So uh, anyway, so I went to bed. I got up about 6, and I, and I went back to the Trade Center, you know, and I kept meeting more people, and they were finding some bodies, but uh, I guess I spent the rest of the day there. It was on Thursday of that week, I got a phone call to come to headquarters, and they had a meeting, and we each got all these sheets of paper. There was about 500 names, and the commissioner said, these are the 500 names we believe are missing, but we want you to go through them, and you see names on it that don't belong there, circle them. This way, we'll have someone call them immediately and say, where are you, you know? They might be in a hospital somewhere. Some were in hospitals in New Jersey because they, they were taken over by those boats. And as he says, and if they're sitting on their couch at home, tell them to get the hell into work. You know? <laughs> so we did, we crossed out a lot of names and that's how we got it down to 343. Let me ask There's you about when you're at the command post and members are coming past you as they're being given their assignments to their various locations. Is anybody asking you any questions? No. Or asking, you know, for your prayers or anything like that? No. I always describe them. They're like thoroughbred horses in a starting gate, waiting for the gate to open and just go to work. That came up a lot in the parents' support groups. They were standing there waiting to get in, you know. A couple of them got turned back. Timmy Stackpole, one guy said he was ready. He said, no, you've got to find a mask. You're not going in without a mask. And he never got in, so that kind of saved his life. But they went in. It was no longer the stairs at the Trade Center. They were climbing up the Hill of Calvary with Jesus as he was carrying his cross. Because as he climbed that hill, he saved a lot of people. These people went in those buildings, and they kept climbing, and they saved a lot of people because of that. And I said, because of that, 
They earned the right to climb the Hill of Resurrection, and certainly so many of them never came out of the buildings. I learned from listening to different people at different wakes, and I came up with this whole thing that in order to join things like the fire department, EMS, I think the military, maybe even the police department, you have to have certain values. And I've identified three values. You join because you have the value of, of generosity, of compassion, and commitment. And I would add to that, if they didn't live up to their values, we would be in a lot more trouble today because the only thing we own are our values. So these firefighters that ran in, they live by their values. How frequently were you going to the site after 9-11? It depends. Mostly after 9-11, I'd be going to different memorials and funerals and, uh, and usually when the last one was finished, I said, all right, let's go down to, to the site and just see how they're doing, walk around and, you know, give a few words of encouragement. And, you know, so we would do that. I was also with the groups the second week or whatever that went over by boat. The parents would go over. Yes, when the parents would come down to the site yeah. or other and then family we had members. a particular corner for them. In fact, they built a platform just for them. I remember that. When you're going over, there was one feeling of emotion. You know, a lot of them talked about... My husband was very resourceful. He's, he can get out. He's, he's going to be okay, the whole thing. And that would always change when we got to the corner or up on the platform and they'd look out there and the place would just go silent, you know. And we had firefighters up there to answer certain questions. Like they would ask, uh, which one is the building one? Which is two? Which is the hotel? Because you, you couldn't differentiate after a while. They were all together, you know. But I would let them ask questions, and then I would stop them, and I would tell them, I want you to be quiet for a minute. I want you to listen. And you'll listen in your heart, and your loved one will talk to you. He's here. Let him talk to you. Let him tell you he's okay. Let him tell you it's all right. You know, he's safe with the Father. I said, and then talk back to him in your heart because he can hear you too. Tell him how much you love him, how much you miss him, and uh, so on. And then we would, would go down to the, uh, we had this makeshift memorial. Of, it had the fire department, Port Authority police, and it had the New York City police. So I'd bring them there and we, we'd say a few prayers. People would leave plush animals, and they would tape prayer cards. So that was, that was good. On the way back on the boat was totally different from there. Very few people were talking. If they were, it was in very hushed tones. And if I saw anyone sitting by themselves, I would go over and sit with them for a few minutes and, and see how they were doing and, and if I could be of service, you know. How did you manage your own emotional and mental health following, you know, these multiple funerals and yeah. wakes and memorials that went on for a few years yep. after 9-11 in rapid succession. How do you manage your own well-being? What I would do is about once a week or every other week, I'd have lunch with Malachi Corrigan. Malachi was the head of the counseling unit of the fire department. And 
we started freshman year high school together. We went to high school and college together. He was in a seminary for a couple of months and then left. And then he, he became a psychiatric nurse. And it was in 1982 or 83, he took over the counseling unit. So I would go and I'd sit with him and we would bounce off of each other, you know. So as we move forward through the subsequent years after 9-11 and like you say, a new normal, our members start getting sick, various different illnesses, not the least of which is 9-11-related uh, cancers. And you find yourself counseling even more families, attending uh, more wakes, delivering more funeral masses. Right. And uh, eventually you face your own diagnosis. Can we right. talk about that? Yeah, well, it, it was, I shouldn't say interesting. I, you know, I, I have pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer doesn't have any symptoms. It's hard to detect. There's no, uh, nothing showing. But I was going to this doctor, the doctor would go to for my colonoscopies and stuff, because I thought something was happening, you know, in my, my abdomen there. And he did all sorts of tests, and nothing was happening there. And he said to me, you know, I think we have to send you for a scan. And I said to him, since 9-11, I've been part of burying all these people, you know, who had cancers and whatnot. And I'm afraid at this point that I'm going to become one of them. So I had the scan. The funny thing is you, you are on what you call uh, uh, your chart or my chart, my chart I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I got to see the results of the scan before the doctor did. I know. That's the, <laughs> sometimes the, the downside, right? In the first paragraph, it said there was a tumor in the pancreas, and it gave the size, and it told the places where it had spread. So then I called the doctor, and I told him what it said. Yeah, then they, they sent me over to, uh, I got an oncologist, and uh, so. What would you say has changed about the department since 9-11, or even how your feelings have evolved about the department since 9-11? One of the big things has changed in the department, especially out, out in the field, you go into firehouses, you look around, and, and you don't know anyone. You know, it's like a brand-new department. I say mass every year at 131 on 9-11 in the morning. And a few weeks before I went in there, I'm looking around the table. They're all there for lunch. And I said, was anyone of you here on 9-11? One guy raised his hand, and I recognized him. I said, oh, the two officers were not on a job either at that time. And I said, well, that's... 20 years ago, of course. So it was, in some ways, it was hard, you know. The, it was hard to talk about it at times. It was, uh, but that's the way it is. Job keeps changing. The older we get, the younger they get, you know. So I don't know how much time I have left with the department, but we'll see, you know. Thank you, Monsignor, for being here today, for making the time to share with us your 9-11 story. You're the first chaplain that we've been able to discuss 9-11 with. So thanks for doing this for us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDMY Pro Podcast. I'm Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. 
Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.